Hello and welcome to the Week in 60 Minutes from Spectator TV. I'm Fraser Nelson and your host this week. On the show, the Queen's Jubilee, the nation is celebrating, but has the monarchy somehow managed to make itself more relevant rather than less as the decades have gone past? I'll be talking to James Forsyth and to Christopher House. And then to another institution of marriage. Fewer people are getting hitched than ever before, but should we worry? Louise Perry says we should, but from a feminist point of view. An institution, she says, has started to protect women on net more than men. I'll be speaking to her. And then on to Ukraine. Might Putin's luck have turned? Kate Andrews talks to the historians Anthony Beaver and Serhii Plohi. And 40 years on since the Tiananmen Square massacre, how has China changed? It's got a lot rich, but culturally it's going into reverse, says Cindy Yu. She joins me as well. And finally, why is it so difficult to get a face-to-face appointment with GPs? Marion Thomas joins me and says it's down to do with a new NHS system called Total Triage. We'll discuss it later. And before we start, a special offer. If you don't subscribe to The Spectator, then this is the perfect chance to try. Our uh, marketing department are offering a economically unwise uh, deal. For just £1, you get 10 weeks of the magazine, 10 weeks full digital access, and a Spectator Jubilee tea towel, just for a quid. So to avail yourself of this um, deeply um, economically daft idea, then go to spectator.co.uk forward slash platinum. Anyway, on to that jubilee. Christopher House, the Spectator's former production editor and our Portrait of the Week writer, joins me with James Versailles to discuss the mystery of the monarchy. Why is it that now in 2022 it should enjoy popularity way greater than politicians and, if anything, more strong than it was a quarter of a century ago? Christopher, let's start with you. Would you say you're a monarchist? And if so, why? Well, I think... I would call myself a monarchist because I support a sort of hierarchical system. And the best kind of hierarchy is where you have a very powerful figure at the top, apparently, who has no real power. So it really is a question of the crown in Parliament. And we saw that when the Queen couldn't make the state opening of Parliament and uh, the Prince of Wales was sitting next to a table where Lord Chumley had very kindly put a a crown on a cushion next to him. And it was the crown that was the thing opening Parliament, really, and he was just the mouthpiece for it. Much better than the President. Um, James, you and I have spoken about politics for many, many years, but not really the monarchy. Where do you stand on this? Would you describe yourself as a monarchist? Well, I think I would say that I was intellectually attracted to republicanism, but I actually think that in practice... Uh, the monarchy uh, works, partly for the reasons that Christopher uh, attested, but also because as as our democratic politics has become more and more divisive, uh, I think that the Queen in particular and the monarchy in general acts as uh, something above politics that can unify the country. You You look at the celebrations that they'll take place this weekend, it is impossible to imagine those celebrations taking place for for any president. Uh, And I think that because you have a head of state who is not political, whose views we do not know on a host of questions, it actually acts as a a unifying symbol, even as our our democratic politics uh, and our parliamentary politics is particularly fraught. And I I think the most remarkable achievement of the Queen's reign is that constitutional monarchy is so uncontroversial in this country, that, that Prince Charles will succeed uh, with, with no serious debate about whether this country should become a republic or not. And I think that, that is down to 
the immense skill with which the Queen has carried out her role. Right. So, James, those who are intellectually attracted to republicanism, yourself and, and many others, who basically would quite happen to, why are they being so quiet right now? Why don't we hear much of a sort of um, a, a kind of pushback against this institution in the way that we did 25 years ago? Because I think that the, the, the value of the monarchy has become clearer in the last quarter of a century. In the last quarter of a century, I would argue that our politics... Uh, has become particularly contested. And I think that therefore the, the value of an institution that stands outside and above politics has become greater. I also think the Queen herself has, has handled the role with, with huge skill. And I think Christopher talked about 1997. I think Robert Harman makes the point in the magazine this week of all the subtle changes that the Queen has introduced since then to the monarchy. And I also think people look at the Queen and it is impossible not to see someone who has devoted their life to public service and public duty. And I think that carries with it the nation's respect. I also think she works as a link back to our history. She is, she is the great link. She is the personification of the link to, to World War II uh, and, and the bravery and courage of that generation. Right. Now, Christopher, to what extent is the monarchy as an institution what has captured people's hearts, and to what extent is it the person of Elizabeth II? In other words, when Charles is doing more than just reading the state opening of Parliament speech, as you mentioned, when he's sitting on the throne, do you expect that will be a moment of um, concern, even crisis for the monarchy? Well, I doubt if it will be a crisis. The thing is that people really don't know why they like the monarchy, and the bounce back from 1997 was, was quite quick, because the golden... Jubilee uh, 2002 was very popular with the people, a million people gathering together to celebrate the Jubilee and political commentators had, had really been predicting that it would be a bit of a flop and it wasn't at all but it's the attempts to get rid of the institution which have shown why it's valuable so it's really of a piece with Tony Blair trying to get rid of the Lord Chancellor overnight and then finding he couldn't because the Lord Chancellor, strangely enough, is uh, an essential part of the way the Constitution works. It's similar with the Queen, that if you start taking away the bricks, then you find that the structure is sort of cracked and doesn't work in, in a sort of living, organic way. Thank you, Christopher. We can let you go now, but James, if we can move from the dignified to the efficient, or the not-so-efficient in this case, of, of 10 Downing Street, I wonder if this Jubilee weekend might be Boris Johnson's last, in, um, certainly without le a leadership contest. We're hearing rumours of, of letters calling for a confidence vote approaching, even perhaps surpassing, the total of 54 needed to trigger a no-confidence motion. What are you hearing? So I don't think we'll know anything for certain until Parliament returns uh, next week. But I think if you look at the number of Tory MPs who've gone public saying that they've sent a letter or that they think Boris Johnson should resign, it is clear that we are very close to uh, the 54 letters required for a, for a no-confidence vote. Well, James, say, say for, can you just say a little bit more why that's clear? Because if you look at the MPs that have gone on the record saying they want him gone, there's only about 25, 30 of them 
and not pretty far short of 54. So where are you getting the remainder from? So uh, as a conservative estimate, I think if you, do, if you times the number of public letters by 1.5, that gives you a fairly conservative estimate on the number of letters that are in. Uh, I also know of one, albeit quite junior, minister who has sent in a letter. Obviously, no minister could send in a letter and then go public because they would have to, to resign if that mm. was what they had done. Uh, and there will be other MPs who are just keeping their heads down. And we've talked about this before, Fraser. The most deafening sound at the moment is the silence of Tory MPs. Most Tory MPs don't want to avoid either publicly calling for Boris Johnson to go or publicly backing him. And how that, that, that silent majority of the party splits, I, I think, is another thing that will be causing concern. I think there are now some close allies of the Prime Minister who regard having to fight a no-confidence vote as almost inevitable. Now, I should insert one caveat here, which is there are some people who want Boris Johnson gone who are urging uh, their fellow MPs not to send letters in. They, they, their argument goes like this. Look, if you wait until after these two by-elections on June the 23rd, you've got a much better chance of winning the no-confidence vote against Boris Johnson. So if he loses two safe Tory seats, then that's going to be regarded as the final nail in the, the argument that he is a winner. Yeah, and also the fact that these two Tory seats are, are very different. Wakefield is a seat that's been traditionally Labour, that the Tories won in 2019 for the first time. Tiverton and Honiton, a seat in the southwest, a rural seat, has been Tory since its creation in 1997 and has a 24,000 majority. The argument goes if both of those seats go on the same day, that will cause concern at kind of both ends of the Tory parliamentary party and that could tip a ballot. Now, I think if the no-confidence ballot takes place soon, those Tory MPs who know the parliamentary party best, their view is that Boris Johnson would win but by uh, a smaller margin than Theresa May won her contest in 2018. So we're looking at, and what, about 100 votes? You need 180-odd votes to depose him. Uh, under this scenario, there'd be, what, 100, 120? So Theresa May got just shy of two-thirds of the vote of her parliamentary party. The argument is that Boris Johnson would win, you know, 60, 40, or maybe slightly less than that. And that, notionally, that should mean that Boris Johnson would be safe from another challenge for a year. But, you know, this is the Tory party and the rules can be changed very quickly. And I think if, that were, if Boris Johnson were to win by that narrow margin, I think this leadership story would rumble on um, month by month with, with demands for change to the rules to allow a fresh ballot and the like, or with demands that the cabinet should go and say that the game is up. And I think the problem for the Tory party is that you can't get around the fact it is fundamentally split on the leadership question. You know, if Boris Johnson were to be deposed, I suspect there would be a kind of Mark Antony candidate in any leadership contest. Right, but the problem, James, is that Boris Johnson has made clear on quite a few occasions that he does not want to go from number 10. If you were to to win a a leadership, uh, even if you win badly, then you'd pretty much need the SAS to get him out of number 10, wouldn't you? I think Boris Johnson would consider a victory in uh, a no-confidence vote as, as settling the matter. He would say, look, it's cleared the air. Under the rules, I'm now safe for a year, so I should now be allowed to get on with it. I think the Tory party is too split at the moment for that to happen. I think, I think the tensions would continue to roll uh, as they did under Theresa May. I think that one of the aspects of the Tory rules is that this 15% threshold offers the incumbent a lot of protection. But once it has been breached, it makes the incumbent's position more vulnerable because the ballot that follows um, is, uh, is inherently drains the Prime Minister of a considerable chunk of their authority. 
Now, finally, James, we've been here before. We were having these conversations in January, February, and it always seems to peter out. Might it just peter out again this time? Yeah, look, there is obviously a temptation to think that this is the boy who cries wolf when a, when a political uh, journalist turns up and tells you that the 54 letters are close to being reached. But it is worth remembering that there was actually a wolf at the end of that story. And the second thing I would say is it is the sheer... What makes this different, I think, from January and February is the sheer number of Tory MPs who have gone public. Uh, back in January and February, it was a much smaller number who were actually out there publicly. This time round... Uh, you know, the, the numbers I suspect would have changed by the time this is broadcast. But if you look on Spectator Coffee House, there is an updated list. You, know, you are talking about 30 Tory MPs who have gone public. OK, and as James says, you can keep track of the developments and the list of Tory rebels on our website over this bank holiday weekend and as this drama unfolds. James, thanks very much. We'll be back hearing from you next week to see what, if anything, is moving. About 10 years ago, we saw an uptick in marriage, but that was fairly short-lived. Rates are right now plunging again, down to half what they were of the peak in 1972. So is this a sign of a more liberated society? We're delighted to have the new statesman writer, Louise Perry, writing for us in The Spectator about this phenomenon. She has a book now out called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. Louise, great to have you with us. And why do you think that the marriage rates are going down? Isn't this a sign of social progress? So the um, crucial piece of legislation here is the Divorce Reform Act in 1969, which was uh, one of the sort of the great pieces of liberalising legislation in the, the period of the, the beginning of the sexual revolution. Um, it, what's really interesting, I went, when I was re- writing the book, actually, I went back and I read Hansard and I read the debates around that piece of legislation. And um, the view at the time was that this was just a very minor piece of, piece of um, liberalisation that would just make life a little bit easier for people who were in desperately unhappy marriages and, and, and needed to be out of them. This is, of course, at the time when it was really hard to get a divorce and you had, mm-hmm. to, prove, you had to prove adultery, intolerable cruelty, etc. Um, and so the view from all of the, the, uh, the, the revolutionaries, they didn't know they were revolutionaries at the time, was that yeah. you just a little tweak and it would make things just that little bit simpler, that little bit kinder to people who were desperate to get divorced. Um, of course, that's not what happened at all. <laughs> what happens immediately, you look at the graph of divorce rates in the UK and 1969 is just this explosion um, and you see divorce climbs and climbs it peaks in the 1970s and then it's kind of leveled off or, or, or just uh, uh, bounced around a little bit since then but that's not because marriages are becoming longer it's because people are not getting married in the first mm-hmm. place and what seems to have happened is that as soon as you sort of reach this threshold where it was no longer assumed that you would be married for life you end up with this kind of acceleration effect where previously you would only consider a divorce if your marriage was desperately unhappy and then it became the threshold became a little bit lower and a little bit lower and a little bit lower and now we're at the stage where about half of children are not born in wedlock which is historically unprecedented and clearly there have been beneficiaries of that i completely acknowledge that there are some marriages that are miserable and abusive and and desperately need to end and people should be able to end those marriages but I'm not convinced by the idea that this has been liberation for everyone I particularly think that children have suffered as a consequence of this and I think poor women in particular have suffered as well because what we know from the data is that the the best environment 
for a stable and prosperous family in which to raise children is a, is a married couple who stay married. But is that necessarily... The, I mean, is marriage... Does data show that marriage is better than two people cohabiting? Because what you can... What you get is quite a lot in Britain and... Um, and to take Sweden, for example, my wife is Swedish. When I got... Uh, when I proposed to her, uh, her friends were kind of shocked. So we didn't... We, she wasn't even pregnant. You know, in Sweden, the way things work out, there's you have a baby, if things go well, then you might get... Have another baby, if things go well, you might then get married. But it doesn't, um, it's difficult to say that Swedish society is any sort of worse than British because they've got a cohabiting tradition. So is cohabitation demonstrably worse than marriage for the child? I don't know the situation in Sweden. I wonder if common law marriage is recognised in law there because that does change things. One of the things that a lot of people don't realise here is that we, they're, they're un, you have no rights um, unless you are married formally to someone so you, you, you there there are all sorts of negative con consequences if you are if someone dies or you split and you're not formally married in terms of things like uh, inheritance tax and you know other other rights that married couples but you have civil partnerships here the Blair government introduced this sort of marriage light at the time but then interestingly that just seems to have been um I mean, it is, in technical terms, basically the same as being married, just without the religious aspect. Mm. It. it gives you all of the legal entitlements, doesn't it? If people don't want to get married, but still want the protection, the legal protection of inheritance and whatnot. But that's been a flop, has it? Well, it doesn't seem to have had the uptake that one might have expected. People are just choosing to cohabit. And the problem with cohabitation longer term, and in thinking about children and so on, is couples who are cohabiting are much more likely to split. Because there seems to be a when it is just that little bit more difficult to, you know, every relationship across, across a lifetime, life is very long. You will go through periods of not liking each other as much. And it seems that when you've got, when it's hard to divorce, people tend to stick with it and are more likely to push through the tough times and get to, and, um, get to a happier stage where they, you know, are, are, are pleased to still be together. But if divorce is easy or if just splitting because you're not even married in the first place is easy. We, we see in the data that people are much more likely to do it and actually re likely to regret it. I was really surprised to read data on the proportion of divorced people who regret getting divorced. In this country, it's between about a third and a half. Really? Um, yeah, I know, it's really high. Uh, some of our listeners might be find it strange, this argument coming from you, a new statesman writer. I mean, typically... The rights have been the one talking about family values and trying to make it, trying to resist um, divorce reform. And the left have been the one arguing for more liberal structures. Do you think the left have miscalculated here that marriage is a progressive force? I mean, if you look at the data, the class skew on marriage is absolutely incredible. In this country, also in the States and in other places, you get a, um, a liberal elite who tend to talk negatively about marriage and are opposed to marriage incentives in policy making and so forth, but they are actually the group of people who are most likely to themselves get married and stay married. Um, so there's a kind of, uh, the uh, if you've heard the expression luxury belief, Rob Henderson's um, idea of a, uh, an idea which confers status on rich people and harms poor people, the um, anti-marriage sexual revolution idea is a really great example of a luxury belief because it's deeply unfashionable on the left to talk about marriage being a force for good but actually people who, who people in elite positions, people who, 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 who are um, wealthier upper middle classes 
for themselves love marriage <laughs> and, and are the group most likely to choose it for themselves and, and, and wish it for their children and so on. They're just reluctant to prescribe it for the rest of society, which actually disproportionately harms poorer people. Right. So do you think in this case that the progressive cause should be to promote marriage? I mean, it seems um, unlikely, but I don't know. But from what, from what you're saying, if, if the figures show, as you suggest, that marriage, first of all, is a tool that benefits people, that the rich tend to get married a lot, even though they advocate liberalism, and that um, people in poorer communities are suffering for the lack of it. Is this um, a cause which the left ought to take up? I mean, what can you do to promote marriage? It sounds a bit hectoring, doesn't it, for, for any politician to be suggesting to somebody else how they should or shouldn't live their lives? As I say, deeply, deeply unfashionable. But I think that if we're, if we're thinking about children in particular, and if we're concerned about um, the various adverse outcomes that come for children of, of, of not growing up in a house with their fathers at home, talking about things like higher incarceration rates for boys, higher teen pregnancy rates for girls, poorer mental health for both sexes in all sorts of ways. We know that there is this this institution, you know, now now mostly dead, which can improve all of those outcomes. Um, and actually, you know, there are all sorts of ways in, in this country that marriage is actually disincentivized by the state. For instance, we don't assess people's tax on the basis of the family. It, it is... Um, there's very few advantages from being married in terms of your tax arrangements because you still have to pay tax on an individual basis, which means that a single earner household actually ends up paying a lot more tax than a dual earner household, which is has been deliberately designed um, by the new Labour government. That's the sort of policy that would be quite easy to change and would provide just that little, little bit of incentive for people to choose to get married and choose to stay married with all of the benefits that brings in terms of both for individuals and also for families. If this isn't really creeping through in policy, I wonder if it's creeping through in popular culture. Let's take, for example, Beyonce, a great feminist icon. Now, she um, argued about, um, well, quite a few years ago now, that women should be insisting upon marriage. If you like it, she said you should put a ring on it. Do you think this will be a, a feminist um, creed occur now? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, where Beyonce goes, I suppose we all follow. But um, uh, I mean, I think it ought to be. And I think I think what's really interesting, and I write about this in the piece at the end, is that um, a lot of um, feminist or progressives who rail against marriage because it's associated with the religious right and all of this, it's old fashioned, it's terrible, find ways of kind of reinventing marriage. Because actually the, the, the like, central idea of having some sort of formal legal bond to the person with whom you're in a sexual relationship with, and even more so with whom you have a child with, there's actually a great deal of, of wisdom to that. There's a reason that it has persisted down the ages. Um, and so you have various sort of proposals which sound actually an awful lot like marriage, <laughs> but um, just don't have that. That, that term. I think. Yeah, I was fascinated in your article that you mentioned um, something called radical monogamy, a phrase I hadn't heard across, come across before, but is mentioned by, by Vice magazine recently. What is radical monogamy? And is it just another word for marriage? Yeah, radical monogamy apparently is when you deliberately choose to be monogamous, having sort of properly assessed all of the other options rather than just being monogamous by default because that's what the culture tells you you ought to do. I do not see any meaningful difference between those two things. The outcome is exactly the same. 
And it's a good one, you know. We know, I mean, on the, the, the subject of polyamory, so that's what's been presented as the alternative to monogamy, right? And there are and there are various pushes to um to formalise polyamory and permit um permit multiple marriages and so on. I don't know if they're gonna go anywhere. One of the things I write about in the book is that um monogamous marriage is not only good for individuals, good for children, it also has effects on the whole of a society, which are really remarkable. Um, monog- societies where monogamous marriage is formalised in law um, tend to be more prosperous. They tend to have lower rates of violence. They tend to have lower rates of domestic abuse and child abuse. There are all sorts of ways that, you know, because all of this is networked, right? That, like, kind of the point I'm trying to make in the book is this isn't just about individual choice. This isn't just about individual freedom. This is thinking about the the, the well-being of society as a whole. And monogamous marriage has turned out historically to be this amazing tool for promoting um, a flourishing society. And a progressive force for feminism. That's my argument, yeah. <laughs> Louise Perry, thank you so much for joining us on Spectator TV. We're almost coming up to 100 days in the war in Ukraine. So how's it going? My colleague Andrews caught up with two eminent historians, Anthony Beaver and Sirhai Plohi. Here she is in conversation with them. Anthony and Sergey, thank you for joining Spectator TV. Anthony, can you please start by giving us an update on the war in Ukraine? Well, the latest developments uh, are rather alarming. Um, the encirclement or imminent encirclement of Severodonetsk uh, could cut off uh, a fairly large number of troops in an impossible position. Uh, it implies that uh, the real attempt at the moment is to uh, completely seize um, the Luhansk uh, area and Donetsk and basically cut off Ukraine from the Black Sea entirely. Now, that is uh, deeply worrying because it means that uh, Putin uh, could then say, right, uh, we will negotiate on this particular basis and Ukraine will be completely vulnerable and could be attacked at any further point in the future. So I don't see I don't see any acceptance of a uh, truce, let alone a peace, uh, based on those sort of uh, on that sort of situation, uh, so I think that it is a, a worrying development, and uh, I see the I would have thought uh, the war has got to go on really until the late autumn, right into the winter at this particular stage, and the destruction will be utterly devastating. Serhii, the Russian forces are reaching what looks increasingly like a stalemate in the east of Ukraine. Do you think that's the best way to describe it? Well, they're still on the offensive, and uh, there is a real danger that uh, one of the major cities in east of Ukraine, the Severodonetsk, can be completely surrendered. And then we could potentially see the replay of the Mariupol story, which is an um, awful story, tragic uh, story on, on many levels. So this is this is the mo- the most dangerous moment in in that stage of the war. If Ukraine manages to avoid the encirclement and withstands that pressure, the most likely scenario is indeed a stalemate. A stalemate not only in the east, in the Luhansk area and Donetsk area, but also in the south. 
And most likely what will be happening after that, there will be a month or two of preparation, most likely for the resumption of the uh, military actions. Ukraine is waiting for uh, heavy armament coming from the Western allies. The decisions has been made politically, financially, and otherwise, but it takes time to deliver those weapons. It takes time to train officers and soldiers, because at this point, Ukraine is outgunned and probably outnumbered. And outgunned, what I mean is that the artillery that Ukraine has, it actually can't reach as far as the Russian artillery reaches. And in this uh, counter, uh, in, in this war between the artilleries and batteries, Ukrainians are ill-equipped to, to win that kind of war. Uh, Antony, last time we spoke, Russia was just beginning to refocus its campaign away from Kyiv, which felt like a temporary victory for Ukraine, uh, that they were refocusing away from the capital. But did that lull us into a full sense of security? Did we overestimate that, that temporary victory for Ukraine, given all the problems for its troops that Serhii just mentioned? Well, I think there was a certain amount of optimism, uh, but I do remember um, having heard from, you know, various uh, experts here, particularly the Ministry of Defence, there was a, uh, a severe uh, concern that actually they would then adopt, the Russians would then adopt a much more uh, aggressive strategy uh, and attempt to encircle and cut off uh, the main Ukrainian forces in the east. Uh, and this, I think, we're starting to see now. So I don't think it was totally unpredicted, but it's true that the shock of seeing uh, the Russian army starting, in many cases, almost to disintegrate uh, the bad morale, the um, refusal of troops sometimes to accept orders and uh, even uh, withdrawals which had not been prepared, um, and also their inability to use their own equipment very effectively, uh, did and certainly boost the idea um, that there was a real chance of uh, a Ukrainian victory. Now, um, I think that uh, reality has uh, certainly shown itself that it is going to be a very, very tough struggle indeed. Uh, and uh, as uh, Sahi quite rightly said, you know, until the Ukrainians can really have uh, an equality in firepower, particularly in artillery, which uh, the Russians have always relied on, uh, in a major way, both uh, in recent uh, wars, whether um, in Chechnya or uh, in um, Syria, as well as, of course, during the Second World War, where it referred to its artillery as the god of war. Um, but until the Ukrainians can really match that, as, uh, as has just been said, um, we are going to see a very, very tough time for the Ukrainian forces. So um, there's, a, there's a long way to go before we um, start to see any real improvement. And Sergei, I'm interested in those comments because a lot of attention has been paid to the tens of billions of dollars flowing from the United States to Ukraine and from many other countries around the world, along with the military equipment and, and the guns, as you put it. Um, and, and again, this has made people feel relatively optimistic that Ukraine's military budget oh, could even surpass Russia's. But it's this time lag that you mentioned that in the meantime, before that money and that training can all catch up, this is a very difficult time for the Ukrainian army. It is a very difficult time, and the uh, help that is being provided, both in terms of the 
uh, weapons and military equipment and uh, finances are essential for Ukraine being able to fight. Uh, that being said, the, the money that is being provided don't amount even to half of the Russia's yearly budget. So it's, it's a lot of money, but it's not, not on par what, with the kind of resources that Russia has at this point. Uh, Ukrainians really surprised uh, the world with their resilience, with the kind of resistance that they show uh, in the fight against the most probably feared army in the world so far. Uh, they also exposed the weaknesses of that army, and Anthony was, was uh, talking about some of them. I also, when I read the reports from the front lines in Ukraine and about the Russian army being engaged in all these uh, war crimes and, and abuses and looting and so on and so forth, what comes to my mind as seen from Anthony's uh, books on World War II, it looks like we have this 70, 80 years past, but the the way how the Russian army fights its wars didn't change much. And uh, again, artillery is extremely important part of that story. And it's the story uh, of destruction of the cities from Aleppo to Mariupol, starting in uh, Hrozny and in Grozny in Chechnya. And now, now we have this battle in east of Ukraine in Severodonetsk. So um, it, can be, it can be really really very costly in, in every possible way, but mostly in terms of the lost lives and, and completely destroyed, destroyed infrastructure. So the sooner Ukraine can get the equipment it needs, the better and the less, the less suffering there will be. And on that point, Serhii, the government in Kyiv looks like it's getting back to work. Parts of the country have reopened. If the war does continue for months or even years, what will life be like for Ukrainians there? Uh, this is exactly the question that many, many people in Ukraine and outside of Ukraine ask themselves. How to adjust to life like that? And also in terms of rebuilding Ukraine or reinvesting in Ukraine, if the low intensity war continues, how safe are these investments and, and this rebuilding efforts? And it looks like there is no uh, very clear answers at this point, except that answers come with very practical steps that Ukrainians and other uh, allies are taking at this moment. And as we speak, the number of Ukrainians that are living Poland for Ukraine, so going back to Ukraine, is now significantly higher than the number of Ukrainians living Ukraine for Central Europe, which tells you a lot about, about the sentiment in Ukraine. And the fact that the Western embassies, including the UK embassy, that left Ukraine before the attack, sending, of course, the, the decision was absolutely correct, as we know now, but sending terrible, terrible sign in terms of the morale to the to people in Ukraine. Now those embassies, and UK embassy in particular, are back, sending a very positive signal to, to Ukraine and to the world. So um, I guess we will be, we will be um, providing the answers to what to do in the context of the continuing war as, as things develop. But as, as at this point, there are some signs of limited normalization in terms of political life, in terms of the economic life and military and the Ukrainian society and the world adjusting to these conditions of the war. No one believes anymore that the war would last 72 
hours that Ukraine would 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 fall. So the armed forces of Ukraine showed the ability to to hold the line and uh, possibly go on the offensive at some point. Antony, the researcher for your new book, Alexei Ivashin, is now actually on the front lines where the Ukrainians are working to push the Russians back. Can you tell us about your relationship and have you spoken to him? No, I haven't managed to speak to him, um, but uh, we've been sort of in uh, indirect touch and uh, from having sort of having to give up, if you like, his uh, reader's card in the archives, um, he is now um, fighting as a rifleman medic uh, uh, with the uh, 10th Battalion of the Territorial Defence. Um, in fact, actually, um, any, a lot of us, uh, various friends, have been crowdfunding equipment for them of night vision um, stuff and things like that. And I think that the more we can do, it's not just a question of governments and providing the artillery on a much lower level, you know, any crowdfunding of um, buying uh, vehicles and so forth, um, is uh, a tremendous help. And I think that uh, everybody can do what they what they can in those circumstances. But coming back uh, a little bit to um, what was sort of said earlier, um, we are seeing a very much, as Saki rightly said, you know, a, a repetition of the previous atrocities committed, uh, particularly in, say, 1945 by the Red Army, um, and there's been, I think, an increasing debate of where all of this brutality comes from, the way that even Russian soldiers are, are treated um, in the same way, rather, as the Red Army was often treated by its own commanders in the Second World War, uh, with a contempt and also uh, with total lack of feeling. So um, the, the debate, to a certain degree, is sort of, you know, where does all of this uh, brutality, as uh, uh, one uh, columnist wrote, you know, this uh, uh, this casual savagery come from. And I think that uh, it is an important one. I mean, one can't generalize because obviously there is no DNA of national character. But at the same time, there is a question of self-image. And I, I do feel that a lot of this goes back a very, very long way. I mean, it goes perhaps back all to the Mongol invasions of the 13th century, that you believe that uh, the frightfulness of war, the cruelty and savagery uh, is a legitimate um, or a natural uh, weapon of war. Um, and the certainly the crimes that have been committed, uh, of which more and more have been become um, uh, evident uh, just literally in the last couple of weeks, um, shows that actually things haven't changed very much in that particular way. There is an attitude, really, that brutality is a form of strength. Um, and I think that this comes much more, not obviously not from, as I say, a, a, a national characteristic, but much more from a national self-image. And um, there is this sort of Russian Kremlin view of strength, uh, which is totally linked to uh, a, a form of brutality. Mm. Serhi, uh, your new book, Atoms and Ashes, looks at nuclear disasters, and there are nuclear reactors around the area of this conflict. At the beginning, there were worries that one of them had actually been shelled. Should we still be worried about an accidental escalation of this war? Uh, yes, yes, we should. 
Uh, I really didn't imagine when the war started that the nuclear theme would reemerge and not in the way how most people think about nuclear in a sense of the use of nuclear weapons. There were noises about that as well, but in a very unexpected way that the war would come to the nuclear power sites. And on the first day of the war, uh, the Russian army in unmarked uniforms took over control over the Chernobyl nuclear site, the, the site of the worst nuclear accident in, in history. And then a few days later, there was an attack, a military attack with shelling on the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, the largest nuclear power plant in Europe. And one of the buildings caught fire. The uh, nuclear power plant was, was taken, the, the uh, National Guards of Ukraine were overpowered, three of them lost their lives, and the personnel was held hostage. So this is, this is a recipe for disaster, recipe for another, for another accident. We were extremely lucky that it didn't come to that, that the Russian troops were also stopped uh, a, few, a few dozen kilometers away from the southern Ukrainian nuclear power plant, another nuclear power plant. And uh, this is a concern not just for Ukraine. This is a concern for the entire world because we are facing a new reality. War comes to the nuclear power plants. 440 reactors exist today in the world, and none of them was designed with an eye on the or ability to withstand shelling or to be part of the of the uh, object uh, uh, subject of the of the uh, military takeover, uh, we are not. We don't even know where to start to think about that. What that means, and uh, this is this is a new reality. This is the new reality of the war, and and a, a sort of brutality, a sort of mindedness that has been part of of uh, this war in the way how it is waged by the Russian Federation. And Anthony was talking about the national character and DNA. I certainly absolutely agree with that. I want to add that there are institutions and there are certain institu uh, traditions within those institutions. And what we saw in the last few months is that the Russian army really is in many ways unreformed uh, Red Army or Soviet Army of the 40s, 50s, and 80s. And the commanders that are in charge today, they started their careers, certainly in the Soviet Union in the 70s and 80s. And uh, that, is, uh, that is certainly something that is not part of the strength of the uh, Russian armed forces, but part of the weakness. Uh, Anthony, what do you make of the argument that if the West keeps arming Ukraine and keeps encouraging Ukraine to fight, that it might encourage Putin to eventually use nuclear weapons or to target nuclear reactors, escalating the war even further? Well, that danger exists. I mean, we are seeing um, a recklessness um, with the attacks on, say, the nuclear power stations, but also uh, in the general conduct of the war, uh, which is terrifying. Whether or not uh, Putin is uh, seriously ill, close to death or whatever, um, really does raise a very major uh, danger that he may be prepared to go really to the, to the very limits. Um, partly, I suppose, you know, to have his own uh, legacy and history or whatever as the man who tried to restore not so much the Soviet Union, but the Russian Empire and his, in his mentality. Um, 
But the very fact of the anger, the humiliation of uh, failing to achieve that quick victory which he had expected um, is deeply, deeply worrying. But I, I think that the other thing we should add is um, what's very striking is the way that Putin is now trying to micromanage the war, um, rather in the way that Hitler did during the most disastrous moments of the last part of the Second World War. Uh, mm -hmm. Ironically, it was Stalin who uh, was a disastrous leader at the beginning, but then suddenly learned in 42, in late 42, that he had to give the uh, the generals hit their heads so that they could uh, control matters. And then actually he became quite an effective uh, war leader. But um, here we're seeing Putin actually following the uh, Hitler the disaster of, uh, of meddling. Um, and I think that uh, the, the generals are in a very, very difficult position indeed uh, and unable, obviously, to control it. So I think it is, again, another aspect of why uh, the situation is so dangerous. Last question to both of you. Sir, he, uh, in last week's Spectator magazine, our political editor James Forsyth wrote about Zelensky's choice. Should the Ukrainian president negotiate or keep fighting? How do you see this war finally coming to an end? Uh, Zelensky emerged as a very effective uh, war leader, something that no one really expected that that would be happening. He is, uh, in my opinion, consciously or unconsciously emulates Churchill, at least in, in the way how, how he mobilizes the masses in terms of his uh, speeches. Uh, he doesn't emulate Churchill in a sense that he leaves the war to the generals, which was a very, very smart choice. In my opinion, Zelensky is uh, about uh, his political talent, is about feeling and understanding what the people want. And he is an amplifier as, as a politician. And what we see in Ukraine today is that even at the worst, the most, the, 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 the most dangerous moments of the war, during the first days of the war, the percentage of the Ukrainians who believed in the victory was never lower than 70%. So the people of Ukraine are really not prepared to trade territory for peace. That was President Zelensky's position at the very beginning when he was elected in 2019, at the very start of the war, and it continues to be today. So the actual borders probably will be decided at the battleground. But in terms of the uh, Ukrainian recognition of any annexations whatsoever, including the annexation of the Crimea, that is, this is off the table. And it's not just about Zelensky or people around him. This is, this is the mood uh, in the country. Uh, on the other hand, uh, Zelensky sent a signal at the very, very early on that there can be all sorts of different arrangements, not just a NATO membership. What he is interested in and what the Ukrainians are interested in is a peace that actually can stand with the guarantees, not assurances of the kind that Ukraine got in 20, uh, in, 20, uh, um, in 1994 with the Budapest Memorandum, where the nuclear weapons were taken out of Ukraine, creating this security vacuum, which was replaced with nothing. And what uh, uh, the only way how the uh, war can be defeated and the peace can come 
if Ukraine becomes part of a very serious, solid security arrangement. The, the, the new architecture, regional architecture of security has to be designed, either with the certainly with the participation of the old existing organizations, but either within them or out of them, that's, that's the Ukrainian position right now, right today. And uh, I just don't see how, how the war would, went, would end otherwise. I mean, would really end, not end with armistice, if there is no really very strong security guarantees to Ukraine. Anthony, do you agree with Serhii's assessment? Absolutely. In fact, the only assurance for Ukraine would be to become a member of NATO, to make sure, because we cannot trust, they cannot trust, uh, Putin's word uh, for a moment. And uh, he might well pull back, uh, uh, as Napoleon said, for Mursuti, uh, ready to jump again and attack again. So unless there is some sort of cast-down guarantee, um, like membership of NATO, uh, that Russia will not uh, invade or attack or basically harass um, in a, an existential way um, the sovereignty of Ukraine in the future, um, the war will drag on. And I think that Zelensky uh, is absolutely right. We do not want to see the West trying to force uh, Ukraine into a compromise, um, which will be fairly similar to what happened to Czechoslovakia at Munich. Sir Ian Anthony, thank you so much for joining Spectator TV. Now this weekend marks the anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre, something which you can't really say in Chinese media, I'd be censored if I tried to say that on social media. Interestingly, it's also been taken out of Chinese films and books, so there's hardly any references to what is referred only euphemistically now as the 4th of June events. My colleague Cindy Yu looks back on this in her column for the magazine this week. Cindy, um, thanks for joining me. Now, you say you only really found out about this when you were visiting Hong Kong in your early 20s. How can um, an event so big, historically, be kept out of the national conversation in China? Yeah, I was born five years after the Tiananmen Square um, incident, so I wasn't actually alive when it happened. But by that point, it had already been rubbed, scrubbed out of you know, textbooks, it had been scrubbed out of reporting. Um, Hong Kong, having not been handed over to China at that stage, was actually one of the places where you could be closest to the action and also see what was happening without being censored. Um, so there was a lot of footage there. And I think that's you know, instilled in the city this... Uh, tradition of remembering Tiananmen, which is something that I saw when I went, um, even though I grew up in mainland China and I went to Hong Kong in my early 20s, in Hong Kong University there used to be a sculpture called the Pillar of Shame, which is this gruesome orange um, atrocity really, but the ugliness of the sculpture is really going to show the ugliness of what happened on the square in that day. Now that sculpture is now gone. Um, last year the authorities removed it. As we know, Hong Kong has been undergoing this kind of mainlandization of politics. Um, and so people going to Hong Kong now wouldn't have the same education as I had when I went. And growing up, we just didn't really talk about it. We, I kind of knew maybe that it had happened. It was Liu Si, you know, it was June 4th. But nobody really said anything about it. I certainly didn't learn about it in any history books. And so I didn't really fully understand it, I think, until I went to Hong Kong. And in your columns, and you look at how China has changed since Tiananmen. Um, your economic figures are quite striking. 
Yeah, so the World Bank has a um, poverty standards of uh, under $1.9 uh, a day. Um, in China, before at the time of Tiananmen, it was about 60% of Chinese people were living under that poverty line. Now, that includes people in my family because, you know, we've generationally always been in China. Today, that percentage is 0.1% under the World Bank's um, poverty line. So this has happened in the last 40 years and it's an incredible, incredible change. And to my family and to me, that's not just statistics, you know, that is literally people's lives getting longer, it is people's lives getting better, more education. Um, it's, it's really a bit of a whiplash I write about in my, in my piece. When you think about how much people's lives have changed in such a short period of time. My grandmother um, was born before the communist takeover, she was one of ten siblings. Um, she couldn't finish her schooling because they had only money to give her older sister um, that opportunity and she had to get married very young in order to be securing her life. My mother was born in the Cultural Revolution when my grandmother was actually being denounced um, by the Red Guards. Um, and then when I came along in the 90s, you know, life was relatively good. I had an education. Um, being a girl, I wasn't really treated to any discrimination. You know, there was, of course, a one-child policy. Um, I had enough to eat. I had clothes on my back. Then I was able to leave the country, get a foreign education, and now I'm here. And, you know, that experience is actually not very exceptional when you look at a lot of Chinese people because of that statistical change is just amazing what has happened um, but I think you know I think what, what, what has shown a lot of Chinese people in recent months with zero Covid policy is that actually no matter how much wealth you have if the Chinese Communist Party doesn't want you to do something or if it wants you to do something modern Chinese still doesn't have that much choice. Well I remember at the time after 1989 there was talk about the end of history about how liberal democracy would prevail in the end a lot of people saw Chinese communism as an anachronism, something that might not have toppled at Tiananmen, but it would topple as the country grew wealthier. Now, the country did go through this incredible wealth that you demonstrate, no real appetite for liberal democracy, or if there was, it wasn't something that politically managed to express itself. Why is that? Do you think it's because the communists were able to convincingly say that to the Chinese, you've never had it so good, our formula is working, just look at what's happened in the last few decades? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, economic growth was amazing. This year, the economic growth is predicted to be around 5%, or at least that's the CCP target. That sounds good to us, but that's the lowest that it's been in three decades. So you just imagine the kind of economic growth the country has been through. And while it was going, while it was going good, while it was going well, why would you want to rock the boat as, a, as an average Chinese? And I think I, we also have to say here that 92% of Chinese people are Han Chinese. So the kind of ethnic minority suppression it's not something that your average Chinese person in a, in a kind of majority city in a wealthier part of the country is going to be thinking about. So I think that I have to caveat that one. Um, but yes, people are happy to you know, give over certain freedoms in order to have better, longer lives, which is not just materialistic, by the way. It really does mean it's, it's a moral issue for me. It's, it's an ethical issue that you know, people like me could go to have an education. So I think that that was the trade-off. Um, but the economy is now slowing. So the question is, in the next 10, 20 years, is that trade-off still going to hold? Is that contract still going to hold? Or are people going to be thinking, well, actually, you're not really doing well for me anymore? And you say that Shanghai lockdown could be potentially a turning point? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Because, you know, you ask a Uyghur, for example, in China, and they will tell you that the system is not working. You ask a Han Chinese person two years ago, was the system working for you? Yeah, it would have been, really. Um, because even if you were one of the working classes, you still had more opportunities than you know, your previous generations and your family would have done, for the reasons I've explained. But I think what the Shanghai lockdown has done is so shocking because 
It is the most educated, the wealthiest city in the country. And what it has shown those people is that no matter how much wealth you have, no matter how much education you have, you can't, you don't have the political freedom that those students in Tiananmen Square in 1989 were fighting for. You still don't have that, even if life on the surface seems better. You know, it really makes people think, how much do I really have? You know, what really matters in my life? Why do I have to go to state quarantine if, I, if I've only been to come in contact with someone who's asymptomatic? COVID? You know, all of these questions have been asked by very middle class Chinese people who so far have been happy to just sit, sit on their backsides. Right, but Tiananmen wasn't, as it turned out, a turning point. Um, is there really any serious reason to believe that the Shanghai lockdown could be? Because previously, Chinese people have shown an incredible ability to put up with political repression, to put up with censorship. You mentioned in your piece about how Chinese films and everything have been censored a lot more in the last couple of decades than they were before. So there was a kind of artistic flourishing pushed into reverse. But you say this is not against the protests of the Chinese population. You say the filmgoers, if anything, aren't particularly interested in the avant-garde film that was being served up a couple of decades ago. Yeah, of course. And I think, I think it's always hard to generalise about the Chinese people. It's 1.4 billion people, a fifth of the world's population. So when we're talking about her, we, we do have to be careful when we say this is what people would believe, because scientifically we don't have polling data for obvious reasons. So what I'm worried about is, if you look at the film industry, it's films like Wolf Warrior and Wolf Warrior 2 that are topping box offices, rather than the amazing kind of subversive, both politically and socially subversive things that we saw um, in the aftermath of the Cultural Revolution for a few decades. And that was the stuff that was winning international awards. You know, Westerners and the Chinese liked it because it was challenging the history that had happened so far. It was showing for the first time on the big screen the suffering that, you know, my country's people had been under. That has gone into reverse in the film industry, and I worry that it's not just a top-down thing from censors. I worry that it's also people becoming more narrow-minded, people becoming more hubristic about how China is good now, and therefore they don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. I think the Shanghai is a moment for people to rethink that. But I, I think you're right, you know, people just say Tiananmen Square was going to be a turning point. People are always talking about Chernobyl moment with China, and it never really comes because the Communist Party is just so much more resilient than a lot of people give it, give it credit for. Um, so all I can say is that I hope that this makes people reconsider. Um, but even if they do, there's not much they can do about that. And do you have a gut feeling as to what direction China is going in, in general? Would you want to say where we're going to be? I don't know, in 10 years' time, a more or less liberal China? Is the Communist Party's grip going to be as strong as it is now? Are there any real reasons to see any real domestic pressure for a political change? I think the economics um, is the one to keep an eye on because, you know, previously, at the beginning of this century, people thought this was going to be the moment when China overtakes the US as the world's largest economy. I'm not even sure if that's actually going to happen now, if you look at the slowdown of the Chinese economy, not least due to the zero COVID policy. So if Xi Jinping can't get his head around the economics, if he can't solve that problem, then a huge source of legitimacy is going to be gone. So where does he go for legitimacy next? It's probably going to be nationalism. And we don't know what that is going to look like because the Communist Party is quite wary about unleashing some kind of nationalism because arguably that's what we saw in Cultural Revolution where you know you unleash this people's power and then you couldn't really bring it back. Um, so I, I don't know what it's going to be like in the next 10 years, but I can say that economic miracle that I was just talking about is not going to be repeated or continued in the next decade. 
Cindy, thanks very much. And of course, you can follow developments in Chinese life and society in Cindy's fortnightly podcast, Chinese Whispers. To find out more about it, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash whispers. Now, we all know how difficult it is to get a face-to-face appointment with a GP nowadays, but why might that be? In this week's magazine, Marion Thomas, who is in the NHS for um, 40 years, writes about a new system called Total Triage, which was introduced during the pandemic and governs GP clinics still. Marion, welcome to Spectator TV. Can you tell us a bit about Total Triage? What is it? Total Triage was announced by the government in March 2020, and the idea was uh, that to protect um, GPs, their staff, and indeed patients from COVID, so that patients were not allowed just to turn up at GP surgeries. They had to phone up or uh, send an email with their complaints, uh, explain what was wrong, sometimes quite personal, embarrassing complaints, and then they would be allocated either to a, a, a a, a phone call or rarely a face-to-face, a face-to-face uh, consultation or a referral to another health professional such as a pharmacist. Uh, the trouble is that that system is not going to be reversed, it's carrying on. It's great for the GPs, they love it and uh, they don't want to uh, turn the clock back um, on triage. So what was introduced as an emergency system for the pandemic is now the new normal? It's now the new normal, receding in response to public opposition, I think, but it's still the new normal, yes. Right. Now, you say in your article that GPs, despite um, seeing fewer face-to-face patients than ever before, are still quite unhappy. Um, Very few of them are working um, five-day weeks. Um, I don't quite understand what the problem is. If they're, you know, the pay is not entirely ungenerous, the hours, from what you say are involved fewer face-to-face contacts than ever before. So what is why there is so many GPs saying that they intend to leave general practice within a couple of years? Re- surveys regularly say that they're very, very unhappy, they find the pressure untenable. It seems the system isn't working for, for them as well as the patients. That's right. They um, say that they're suffering from burnout, and as I explained in my article, I don't quite understand that because I was a surgeon in the NHS with a cancer surgeon for 33 years. I don't remember seeing any colleagues being burned out. But the real problem um, in uh, general practice, Fraser, is part-time working. Um, So we know that 58% um, of GPs work part-time. They work three days or less. and That is absolutely atrocious. So there are 70,000 GPs on the GMC GP register. uh, 40,000 of those work part-time, three days or less, and 25,000 of those work two days or less. So this is the point that's never made by the Royal College of GPs or by the BMA. The reason that patients have difficulty finding access to GPs is not because primarily we haven't got enough GPs, but because the GPs we've got are all working part-time. And there are horrible consequences of that. And I think that um, the Royal College of GPs and the BMA should actually apologise to the public and make it clear that one of the big problems is ac- of access to GPs is that so many of them are working part-time. So that spins off to the fact that patients don't get continuity of care, which is the thing they most value. Spins off to the fact that the GPs have to employ so many locums, and I talk about the National Association of Sessional GPs, 
And it even spins off to the fact that um, GPs are, or the general practice is missing early cancers because there is no continuity of care. And again, that is something, uh, a point I make in my article. And you say in your article that the, the sessional GPs, I guess, uh, would I be right in describing them as effectively freelance GPs who go from clinic to clinic, now account for one in four GPs, which raises obvious issues for a kind of continuity of service. If you're not seeing the same doctor, or the doctor is just coming into a place where he's not going to see the same people. So are, are we now seeing also the erosion, not simply of full-time GPs, but of of practices where you might be where you might have a stand decent chance of seeing the same faces. Yeah, absolutely. There's no such thing as practice that you, a patient having a name GP anymore. You're a patient of the practice, not of the of the GP. So that you can be seen by the GP, salary GP, or any number of locums that might be in or out. I call them uh, come today, gone tomorrow uh, locums, and it's. What I don't understand is why this erosion has been allowed to take place. Where is the Department of Health in not stopping this? You have to remember that almost all of these doctors have been educated at public expense um, and they seem to have no responsibility or feeling of um, having to give something back to the uh, NHS. Um, and yet, very early on in their careers, they've decided work-life balance, etc. I'm just going to become a locum GP, work for an agency, have no uh, permanent linkage to a general practice, have no personal contact or offer my patients continuity of care. Why, hasn't the, why has the Department of Health allowed this to happen? And I think one of the problems is that the Department of Health is scared of the BMA. And they, it's basically the relationship with the, with the BMA is one of appeasement rather than uh, directing what should happen. There seems to be no accountability. Um, there's, there's not very good management. And I think one of the solutions I would have suggested is that GPs should be employed by the NHS. Uh, in, at the moment, they are independent contractors. If they're employed by the NHS, then they would have um, a job plan. Everybody would know what they were doing. They'd have to keep the job plan. But because they're independent contractors, they can basically do as they wish. But we went through all that, didn't we? Tony Blair had this massive big new contract with GPs in 2004. And there was, that was supposed to be getting better value for the taxpayer. What happened there? Well, that's what they said. But the 2004 contract, Fraser, I think is the, big, is the beginning of the slippery slope for general practice. So what happened? Uh, GPs were only required to work weekday office hours. Um, they had no responsibility in the evenings, at, at night, at weekends, or on um, bank holidays. So... What actually happened then was the, the responsibility for urgent care essentially fell onto accident and emergency departments. And that's where the rot started. So GPs basically only had to be responsible for 40 hours for their patients, for 40 hours of 164 hour week. Now, medical emergencies don't happen just in those 40 hours. They occur randomly throughout the week. And one of the tragedies of that, um, uh, Fraser, is this. You know, emergency care in medicine, uh, the management of, of, uh, urgently, of sick patients, is one of the most rewarding things in general practice. Um, to see a patient who is really unwell, to make a diagnosis, either to make them better or to put them on the right pathway to getting better, that is the most rewarding, one of the most rewarding things of all. Now, because of the new contract, 
GPs rarely see urgent patients. They obviously get de-skilled. Worst of all, the trainees in general practice, also working 40 hours a week or less, um, are not taught um, or have no experience of the management of managing sick patients because they don't see them out of hours. So we're told that Sajid Javid wants to be a reforming health secretary. We're told Boris Johnson wants to be a reforming prime minister. What would your advice be to them? Would it be to basically to try to get another contract with the GPs? Because that might mean stuffing their mouths with gold yet again. Well, Sajid Javid gave £260 million to GPs last year to improve access. You remember that. And uh, the one thing that the Royal College of GPs and the BMA could have done was to say to GPs, look, why don't you work an extra session or two every week, paid for out of the £260 million from Sajid Javid, just to get us over the uh, post-COVID uh, hump. Just imagine how much goodwill that would do in the community. Just imagine what the patients would think of you. You'd restore all the respect that you've lost during the total triage. But of course, they didn't do it. So the question you asked me was, what should Sajid Javid do? And the first thing is, with any problem, Fraser, you've got to accept that there is a problem and the extent of the problem and do a root cause analysis. The root cause analysis is uh, GPs only work for 40 hours out of the 164 hours a week. They, uh, the, they work part-time. Why are they allowed to work such appallingly minimal hours? Why isn't part-time working, for example, 40 hours a week? I would regard that as being fair and respectable. What other profession is allowed to just pick and choose what hours they work, change their contracts willy-nilly? Uh, I think that Sajid Javid and the department need to take more control of the situation. Merlin Thomas, thanks very much for joining us on Spectator TV. And that's it for this week. I hope you have a great Jubilee weekend. If you'd like to subscribe to this um, YouTube channel, then you can just click on subscribe under the little box and you should get a little notice every time there's a new episode of the week in 60 minutes. I'd like to thank Max Jeffrey, our producer, and the Spec TV team. Do join us next week.